0: prayer, and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask as we study today, that you would give us wisdom, that you would teach us what is right and true. And I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to try the less formal conversation method of class, but there are three topics I do intend to see covered during this period. One of them is. The organization and Babylon issue. One of them is the Civil War in relation to combatancy. And one of them is the Civil War in relation to Ellen White's inspiration, which is not dealt with in your chapter, but which we will be, I will be talking to you about. So if you say anything related to those three points in particular, that's great. And when the class is about half over, so I'm just going to take over and make sure you hear the points I want you to hear that haven't come up already. Does someone remember anything from your reading? Miss Morris. I appreciated the faith when building the Battle Creek Church. It was many years before they had a, um, a group, uh, at least 100 members, but they built the church um, to seat 300. All right, so in the 1850s, when the Battle Creek Church had probably about 50 members, because it was in the 60s when they reached 100, they built a church for 300 That'd be the equivalent of Arkadelphia if we baptized 15 people in April, building a church for 90. That was a yeah, it's a great exhibition of faith. Someone else remember something, Mr. Ferrister. James White, um, were helping with the enlistments, and the- Kind of odd, wasn't it? Yeah, so. So here we go into the combatancy confusion business. Did you sense there was some confusion about how to relate to combatancy? Yes. Is there biblical reason for confusion? Yes. There are some things in the Bible that are a little bit perplexing on this topic. Are we all willing to admit that? What are things in the Bible that sort of come down on the no combatancy side? Thou shalt not kill. Okay, we got a commandment. Thou shalt not murder if that applies. What else? Love your enemies, which is hard to harmonize with shooting them. Keeping the Sabbath, which was an issue really that we brought before Congress that how can you keep the Sabbath and fight wars? Of course you could, maybe So Mr. Arnie brings up another issue. Maybe we could fight in the Civil War on the side of the North, but could we fight in the Civil War on the side of the South? No. Isn't that a fair question? Adventists in the South, does that mean that they, can't, that they can't volunteer? Or what if they're drafted in the South? Is that different if you're drafted in the North? That's a fair question. Okay, but I'm looking for verses inside of noncombatancy right now. Because that's on the side of non-combatancy if it's an unjust war. Any, Any other things in the Bible? There are more, but let's go right here. Anything in the Bible that looks like it's on the side of combatancy? Okay, for example, God instituted lots of wars. I mean, it's kind of repeated, and God's faithful men, very many of his faithful men were warriors, and in fact... The Son of Moses says, God is a man of war, and Jesus in Revelation 12 has a war, and Caesar needs to be rendered what is Caesar, uh, what belongs to him. And <clears throat> what does it say in Romans 13? Let everyone render obedience to the higher powers, and if you resist the power, you're damned. And um, anything else on the side of combatancy? A continuing understanding of Revelation 6, 12, and Revelation 13. Okay, Revelation 13 is talking about America and prophecy. And it's kind of a weak argument, to be honest with you, Mr. Risley, but they're thinking that America is going to be on the wrong side. Do we want to be fighting to support the power that's going to be fighting against God's truth in the end? But truly, that is not a rounded solution. It's not going to help the people in Colombia, and it's not going to, like Bogota, it's not going to help the people in South Africa. If we're going to come to a doctrine on this thing, it's going to have to be not so much situational as biblical. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? Okay, so let's talk about what did happen, and then we'll talk some about what should have happened. So James White, as Mr. Ferrister mentioned was very concerned to keep Adventist <clears throat> young men out of the military. And at one point in the Civil War, the law was that you must go unless you can come up with $300 or a replacement. That is, if you're drafted, you become a recruiter. And you say, hey, Buddy Joe, you know, we need to fight this rebellion in the south. And I've been drafted, but I was thinking I'd let you go in my place. You know what I mean? But that's that's what you're doing, right? You're recruiting someone else. So you're promoting the war at the same time that you're conscientiously against it, which seemed inconsistent to some. Can you understand how they felt? On the other hand, the other option is about the same thing, and that is that you get together $300 to support the war effort. That money was not going, for example, to comfort grieving widows. It was going for munitions. And which is going to kill more people? $300 worth of bullets at a half a penny each or a soldier? I don't think they have thought that through. Um, so what did James White do? He tried to get Adventists out and show... Do you understand why he wanted to show the support... Of the church for the government in this war. Were there some organizations in the north that were sympathetic with the south? In a war between two civil bodies, what happens if you're inside this civil body and it's perceived you have sympathies with this civil body? What happens? You lose your liberties. What did we do to the Japanese? We put them in concentration camps. Well, that's made a strong word. <laughs> Prison camps in World War II. These were nice, good American Japanese. Just because we didn't know which of them might turn coat and become spies. That's not nice. But back to Adventist history. So James White supported the effort. Anything else you saw interesting about Adventists relating to the Civil War, what did happen? Yeah? Okay, Nerds, no, you're saying Adventists divide into three groups. Yeah, we ended up having a lot of confusion on this. In fact, James White wrote an article in the paper called The Nation, which was itself sort of confusing. If you read the article The Nation, you're not quite sure whether it's supporting combatancy or not. And then certain Adventists ended up saying, we believe the Bible says thou shalt not kill, we are not going to kill. If that means that we're put before a firing squad, we're not going to kill. Faithful unto death we're going to be. And they prepared a statement to give to their state legislature saying that if we're drafted, you can shoot us if you want to. We are not going to participate in this war. Which to some of us might sound kind of like virtuous courage. But it was nearly the first time Ellen White spoke up in reference to combatancy. You know what she said? I'm paraphrasing terribly. She indicated that those men did not know what they were talking about. They had not faced death. And if they did, they would find their bravery falling to pieces. And that we should be very careful not to give any indication that we have any sympathy with the South that we have no sympathy with rebellion, that, and she went on to talk about how those who were very bold in saying how they would be conscientious, that that bravado was not a virtue. It doesn't say that we should be combatants, but it sure wasn't the kind of encouragement they expected from her. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what should have happened, and then we'll go to another issue. The Bible has some clear statements related to combatancy. Jesus said, If any man compels thee to go with him a mile, go with him twain. That's Matthew 5, verse 30 something. Who was it that would compel you to go twain in the time of Jesus? I mean, it would compel you to go a mile? That's the Roman soldiers. And if there's any argument that holds no water, it is the argument of, of eventual causes. It works like this. If I give $300 to the government, the government will use it to buy 40,000 bullets, and they will kill 300 southern soldiers and 2 northern soldiers by friendly fire. Therefore, I am guilty of killing 302 people. However sensible that argument may sound, it isn't legitimate. Let me give that same argument to you in another way so you can hear the problems it leads to. Our Father in heaven sends rain on 6 million or 6 billion people. Many of them shoot and rape and murder each other and molest each other. Therefore, God is responsible for... Do you sense where their argument is going? What Jesus taught is that I am responsible for my decisions. The limit of my responsibility is is my field of authority. I am responsible to do right with what I have. And if I am part of a government, for example, and I pay taxes to the government... I am responsible to pay taxes to the government, which is responsible to God to guard my liberty. If the government does not take care of its responsibility, that does not release me from my responsibility. So in fact, Peter and Jesus and Paul all said, pay your taxes. And you know how the three of them died? At the hands of the government, they said to pay taxes to at least Jesus knew it was coming. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible doctrine is certainly contrary to those who would say, don't buy from Procter & Gamble because you're going to be supporting spiritualism. Which, of course, is entirely bogus. More. you have Bibles? Do you have Bibles right here? If you have Bibles here, turn your Bibles to Luke Chapter Three, Luke Chapter Three, and we're looking at verse fourteen. And the soldiers likewise demanded of John the Baptist, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Can I just summarize what John said to the soldiers? Do not kill, do not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. What did Jesus require of the soldiers? He required obedience to the Ten Commandments. These were not to just any soldiers, these were to the soldiers who wanted to join the church. What were they lined up to do? They were lined up to be baptized. It is legitimate for the church to require of its members obedience to the Ten Commandments, even if those members are soldiers. Who are the soldiers to do violence to? No man, which of course makes it troubling for them to carry out some of their occupational endeavors. There is much more that could be said on this topic. And I have two other points I want to get into during this same period. So I'm going to refer you, for your own interest, to an article called The Draft that can be found at BibleDoc.org, dot o-r-g. Did anybody notice in your reading that there was another document prepared with that exact same name? The Draft was an article prepared in your reading to help Adventists and to help the government know how Adventists should relate to it. What religious group was responsible primarily for getting an exemption for religious, certain religious peoples in the war? The okay, the Quakers. You should enjoy your oatmeal more heartily ever after reading that. The Quakers are pacifists. Is that the position of Adventists? I will tell you, the very first thing I said to you was an anti-pacifist position. Do you know what pacifism means? It is the position that that doesn't follow the logic I presented to you. A pacifist will not only refuse to shoot the enemy, he will refuse to feed the man who shoots the enemy, refuse to clean the wound of the man who shoots the enemy, Refuse to, uh, build the gun for the man who shoots the enemy. Refuse to pay his taxes to the man, to the people who pay the man who shoots the enemy. He's a thoroughgoing believer in responsibility for eventual causes. I will tell you, he has not thought his position through carefully enough. or he must become a hermit, because when you buy at Walmart, you are supporting some wicked people in their wicked endeavor. And when you buy gas, you're supporting Venezuela and Iraq and Iran. Maybe you think that that's better than supporting America anyway, but I'm telling you, uh, you cannot get through the business of eventual causes. Um, and God has never put that burden on you. Aren't you glad? Moving off that point, what do you remember about the issue of organization? That was really the main theme of the chapter. Yes, yeah, something. The, a lot of us kind of thought it would be Babylon to organize with the church. Okay, this is exactly right. Building off things that happened before 1844, where suddenly, what was the first angel's message? The judgment hour is here. What's the second one? Babylon has fallen. And that message came. And who was one of the primary men responsible for bringing that message forward? George Storrs did, and there was another man that first wrote an article about Babylon. Fitch, exactly it, it was Fitch. Charles Fitch wrote this thing about Babylon that that just kind of took the scales out people's eyes. And it was the first time we thought about Babylon as possibly applying to Protestants. Prior to Fitch, Babylon was understood by Protestants to refer to the papacy. Now, Adventists are one of the few churches that holds that position, but it used to be everyone held that. So, here's how the logic went. Babylon is the system of false religions. And Babylon commits uh, fornication with the kings of the earth. Therefore, Babylon is a mixture of religion with the state. And now we go back to history and look at the Middle Ages and it seems to make a lot of sense. Where does religion end up being a mess? It's where it unites with the state. Puritans are pretty good as long as they're as long as they're being persecuted. But what happens when they end up in America? They end up persecuting. And the Lutherans are pretty good as long as they're. Well, Lutherans didn't become persecutors for the most part until the Anabaptist movement began growing up in their area. So now we come to the issue of organization. And we're going to incorporate as a body and is incorporation a legal process does it involve the state you know it does involve the state and so immediately your incorporation is the union of church and state if you're listening to this don't stop right now um so you see where the people came from who were saying that we can't organize without becoming Babylon. Turn in your Bibles for a minute to Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. And we're going to look at just a few things relevant to this argument. We're talking about the argument that if you legally incorporate, like Washita Hills has, for example that you have now committed fornication with the state and are justly called Babylon, which sin, of course, I do not believe. Revelation 17, verse 2. Speaking about Babylon, it says, "...with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication." This is a spiritual organization, so we don't understand anything literal like immorality going on here. But somehow there has been an spiritually immoral relationship between the kings of the earth and this woman, Babylon. At least in verse 2, it's somewhat ambiguous, that relationship. They're united somehow, but is it by incorporation or by us, some other means? But it's not ambiguous if you move further down in the very same chapter. Look at verse 18. Our question is what kind of relationship did the kings of the earth have with this harlot? Verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is the great city, which, what does it say? Rain. Reigneth over the kings of the earth. In verse 2, she commits fornication with them, but what does she do in verse 18? And you know, that's exactly the relationship that's described by Babylon. Babylon is that relationship where the church is using the state to her own ends. That's what Babylon the Great is, and that's what Babylon's daughters are. Does history provide plenty of evidence of churches using the state to their own ends? It does. When the church controls the state, that's Babylon. Listen, when you incorporate, you're not controlling the state. You're not exercising your power to manipulate the state. You're not influencing legislation or... I guess the summary of what I'm saying is that the argument is just bogus. But let's look at a few more passages. Look at a few verses further. 18 verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Listen. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And then at verse 9 in the same chapter. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her. They shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. I want you to understand the two-way relationship between the woman and the kings. The woman's benefit is that she controls the kings. What's the benefit to the kings? They have a luxurious or pleasant or more power or beneficial life from the things that she provides in this illicit relationship. That has always been the relationship of the church and the state. Why does the state submit to be manipulated by the church? Because the church offers the state benefits, usually in terms of bribes. But sometimes islands and lands. What did Portugal get? Portugal was given India. What did Spain get? Spain was given enter in South America. Say again. Thank you. I'm talking about the way that the relationship between the kings and this woman Babylon, it is not an innocuous relationship. It's not something like, like incorporation it is a real relationship beneficial to the state it seems to them but really beneficial to the church that is controlling them Mr. Risley What would you say to someone who kind of believes that the state controls the church through incorporation? I would say that that is pretty near schizophrenia. Um, for example, here I am, part of a church, and would you please tell me, sir, how the state is controlling me? Is it affecting my doctrines? Or tell me where to go, where to work, or how to do my evangelism? Is it trying to manipulate my conference, my my conscience? Really, sir, before you make an accusation, check the ninth commandment and do your homework. But that might not be very nice to say it that way, so I might be more tactful if he was really here. Anything else you remember from the chapter related to the topic of organization? Yes. Okay, James White, you can't really accuse him of being a proud man. He accomplished an immense amount of work and was content to let other people get credit for it. So they made Byington Byington the first president, an ex-abolitionist. Let's talk about the pressures that built up towards needing an organization, though. There were pressures. listen, the things we're talking about right now are so practically relevant to Adventism. What's going on in Adventism today that makes this chapter relevant? It's called the Congregational Movement. I say it's called that. Maybe I'm the one who calls it that. Uh, It's the home church movement that's headed by Steps to Life. Or on the liberal end, it's that movement that of associated congregational churches that are are trying to have a less top-heavy organization. They've separated from the Adventist denomination. Is congregationalism the biblical model for organization? This was the issue that had to be settled biblically in the 1860s. In the New Testament, you have local churches. The local churches handle their own affairs. What kind of organization exists in the local church in the Bible? for one thing, you have elders and deacons, and those elders and deacons have authority to discipline their members. But what about if something gets sour in a local organization, so that the whole organization is going the wrong way? Does that happen in the New Testament? Well, it happens in the church at Diatrophes. Diatrophes ends up getting control over the the church and he ends up disfellowshipping those who are trying to receive the Apostle John's advice. If maybe that's an understatement to call John's writings advice. Let's look at it. Turn your Bibles to the Johns just before Jude. Third John verse nine. Third John verse nine. It says, "I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he does, arguing against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren. Listen, he forbids them that would and cast them out of the church." I should just ask you, is the church in the end of that verse the true and faithful or an organization? Isn't it very clear that it has to be an organization? Because a wicked man can't cast faithful people out of the true and faithful. Is there anything in these verses to indicate that there is an organization above the local level? There is. It's the promise of the Apostle John that when he comes, he's going to set things in order. How could John set things in order if there was no organization above the local level? He would have no authority over another congregation. But the best example of this, of course, is Acts 15. Leading up to Acts 15, there's a major argument between two different segments of the church. The churches that are primarily Judean and in Jerusalem and those that are the new Gentile churches. And the question is, do we need to circumcise our boys on the eighth day? And what about all these other Mosaic laws? Paul's teaching this group, you don't need to keep them, but the leaders over here are saying you do. It's a major disagreement of doctrine inside the United Christian Church. If the church was only congregational you would end up with two different congregational associations. <clears throat> associations, But what happens? The two parties come together with representatives. They pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They listen to the evidence from apostles and prophets, quoting from the Old Testament and with prophets right there from the New Testament. With the Bible standard as their guide, they settle the issue And then they send out the word to all the churches, an authoritative answer to this question for Jewish and Gentile Christians to understand. This is the equivalent of our general conference. The Bible certainly teaches organization above the local level for dealing with issues of doctrine. Oh, what happens if you don't have it? Doctrines that would take the Jewish Christians by surprise don't bother Cornelius and his people. And errors that end up getting into the people of Galatia don't bother the Christians in Jerusalem so that Satan working on the weaknesses in various regions of the world does not succeed in overcoming the body as a whole. This is why Adventism, with its divisions on a number of doctrinal positions, for example, the ordination of women, though the leading men in the leading parts of the church, which are mostly Western countries, favor it in most cases, yet it has never been passed through a general conference session, because Satan's errors don't take the whole as well as they take the part. So what began to happen prior to organization? We had two doctrinal apostasies going on. You read about the Marion, Iowa issue. And there was something in Wacon, and there was something in Michigan. Pastors who became disaffected... Wasn't that story interesting about the pastors in Michigan? Pastors, maybe I'll just break off and tell it briefly. Here are the two pastors in Michigan and they happen to hear one of their members arguing with a woman. And they hear her say a profane word in the argument. Now that is grounds for discipline. But of course first thing she needs to do is repent and confess. So in a church trial, they bring her and and she will not confess that she said the word. She won't, she won't, she won't. She's lying there in public and they're getting frustrated and angry. How can she do this? We have two witnesses. And then Ellen White shows up. Ellen White has a vision and she says, the lady... Did to get angry with her neighbor. And the pastors are so happy for the vision. They speak about the inspiration of God helping us through our difficulties. Here you have it. And they go to bed. Next morning, Ellen White has another vision to relate. She's shown that the woman, while she did get angry with the neighbor, that she did not say the word that she was accused of, she said a word that sounded similar to it. As soon as she says it, the woman breaks down and confesses that's exactly what happened, humbles her heart and makes things right as best she can. And what do the two pastors do? They end up... First of all, I forgot to tell you, they were rebuked for their harshness of spirit, which was more than they could take. And they became the leaders of uh, rebellion... That became called the Messenger Party. So there was rebellion caused almost by personality issues. But in Iowa, it was a little different. Or was it Wisconsin? I forget which place the next thing happened. But in the other place, there were many non-Semitarian Adventists. And you know, the non-Semitarian Adventists, I told you how they stepped off the platform of Millerism and they, most of them got into what was called the age-to-come theory. Interpreting the prophecies as if there was going to be a thousand years of peace here on earth. Things are going to get better and better. And a couple of them were convinced about the Sabbath, and so they became Sabbatarian Adventists. But when the review published an article on the millennium, they never had been convinced about the millennium. So they began to fight against that doctrine and began to join with the messenger party in promoting their doctrinal errors. But eventually they totally rejoined the other Adventists, so they gave up the Sabbath and they lost their influence there. Here's the point I want to make. Without organization, you can't do anything about that kind of thing. I mean, you can say those are bad men, but you can't remove their authority to teach. You can't hire a new pastor to replace them. Without organization... Even disfellowshipping is kind of an odd thing. What does it mean to be fellowshipped? And if you disfellowship me, maybe I'll just tell you you need to leave church instead. Without organization. There was something else that led to a need for organization. Besides the need for doctrinal purity and dealing with doctrinal error, what was that? It was publishing houses, owning them. Okay. Owning stuff in general. This would be another argument I would say to those people who were against 501c3s. Do you all know how it works with a nonprofit organization? If we as a board of Washington Ministries decided this coming April that this is just too much work, we would rather devote our lives to secular business and let you all find other schools to go to. You know, you have other good options. Let's sell the property. It's probably right now worth about $1.5 million. And we'll pay off our debts. And that gives a good 150000 each for the board members. And we could probably live on that for a good amount of time. You know we couldn't do that? Did you know we couldn't do that? Even if we all voted it together? Because a 501c3 is a legal organization that has a law that says that if it dissolves, its assets by law must go to another 501c3 organization with similar values and aims. They cannot go to personal people or to us. Do you see any sense in that kind of law? Without a state to protect this kind of ownership situation... If the man who owns the church building goes into apostasy, the church building becomes whatever he wants it to be. A vinegar mill. A what? A vinegar, uh, A vinegar mill? Yeah, as an example? Exactly, which is just an illustration. Without ownership of property, there can be no institutional stability. There's no one on campus now that if they decided to move and go work somewhere else, that we would close this thing down. But if this thing belonged to, for example, say, Dr. and Mrs. Clark, the property personally belonged to them, what happens if they die and their children inherit it and their children aren't interested in continuing The ministry. Yeah. It was a very important thing, organizing. And before we organized, it really held up James White to criticism. What kind of criticism? Yeah. If we have a building, and we don't have organization, and we have a press, and we don't have organization, someone has to own it legally. Legally. And of course, whoever that is must be a selfish dude just trying to get rich by duping people. So James White was one of the real men pushing for organization. Was there any other reason that we needed to push for organization? There was. I'm just seeing if you'll come up with it. I'll give you a hint. The name of a cow. Sister Sister Betsy. What was Sister Betsy all about? You didn't do your reading, did you, Miss Berlin? I can see the look in your face. Sister Betsy, that was the summary of or what we called systematic benevolence. benevolence. Because we had such illustrious men as Jan Andrews and Lothborough, who not because they were weak willed, but because they had wives to support, they resigned from ministry to go into secular business. Why? You're reading about Lothborough? working hard all winter long and working in secular jobs four days a week to earn $4 a week and then putting all his evenings and mornings and weekends into God's work. And how much did he receive from the brethren for all that work? Zero. But he didn't say it that way. He said he received from them $4 if you count the amount he earned or not four but four dollars per week the amount he earned from his labor counting his own work counting his own work exactly then in the in the depression working for a significant period of time he received well that's when he got the four dollars the other time it was more than four dollars yeah he got four dollars for the week and then working Working in the depression he ended up getting for a long period of time four dollars cash and then half a hog you know it took us a while to learn about the health message Basically to food, I guess. and a ham and a bunch of food because poor farmers, what do they have to pay with food, but that doesn't help you with your clothes. So did Jan and Andrews discover the tithing principle when, when this was you know they had a Bible study organization to study out how to support the ministry. Did he find the tithe principle when he studied it out? He found it, so why didn't they go forward with it? You know, God is very, very gentle with his people. Sometimes we just aren't ready to advance as fast as we need to. And eventually, of course, we did. But to begin with, we were recommending an entirely different system. You're going to say something, Miss Johns? So prior to organization, the way they did that they is just keep five bucks in case a minister shows up, give it to him, and send the rest of the money to us to print with, to the press, and, and to do evangelism with. Listen, i got five minutes left, and I need to get to my third topic, so I, I'm going to jump to it. Um, <clears throat> Ellen White wrote quite a bit about the Civil War. My intention was to read you a bunch of it, but obviously I'm not going to get to that. You'll find it in this first volume of the Testimonies. It's in a chapter... I'll just give you a page number because that way you'll believe it's there and look it up someday. Um, It's called The Rebellion. It begins on page 355. In that section are a number of statements Ellen White makes that are used on or in anti-Ellen White websites to indicate that Ellen White is a false prophet. And I'd like to just speak to that for a minute. Elmite, for example, wrote that the South was likely to come in on the so- or excuse me, the South. The nation of Great Britain was likely to come into the war on the side of the South, and that if they did, there would be no hope for conducting the war successfully. In other words, there's going to be two countries instead of one. Now, did Britain join the war? On the side of the South? No. That's a good example, and I guess I'll leave it with that for time's sake and just deal with that one. The others are of similar nature. Ellen White wrote a lot about the Civil War prior to what we call the Emancipation Proclamation. She wrote a great deal about how the North had sympathizers regarding slavery in them. And, that, and she quoted the president as saying that if he could save the Union without abolishing slavery, he would do it. What was Lincoln saying, he's saying? Lincoln was saying that if he can get the South to surrender and stop the war on the condition that they can still keep their slaves, he would accept the surrender. <clears throat> Under those conditions, she made statements about what would happen. But did conditions change? Abraham Lincoln speaks to it himself. He had an entire change of heart in relation to the issue of slavery. And as soon as he made his decision that slavery must go no matter what the cost, God began to prosper the arms of the North. But more particularly, it was after the Adventist church realizing that its worldwide work was going to fall to pieces... If the war did not stop, when they devoted as a, here we are, a worldwide church, but we have a grand total of 3,000 members, but when those 3,000 members gave a couple weeks to earnest prayer and fasting, things began to happen fast, and within three and a half weeks, the war ended. At least the surrender of Richmond came. Does God hear his faithful few when they come to him with earnest prayer? He does. Listen, the war had already been going for four years. Two and a half weeks isn't very long in comparison. And there was no evidence when they started. I mean, there was some evidence that the North would win, but no evidence that they would win soon. Summary is, there are good answers to all the objections you'll find, including the ones about the Civil War. If you ever have any more questions, come to me and I'll talk about them. You look like you're almost raising your hand. I noticed that Ellen White's visions became less frequent when she was neglected. When they're neglected. Okay, so let's bring this up next Monday. It is an important point about James White's opinion and how it nearly led to the end of testimonies. Let's close. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you'll bless our time this evening, especially the meeting we have later, prayer meeting. Teach us the value of your counsels regarding education, your counsels regarding organization, your counsels regarding inspiration. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.